<laughs> I saw you all sitting up front, and I was like, this isn't normal. So I, I wondered, but I wasn't sure <laughs> what that was going to be. So, oh, didn't even see that. Thank you, guys. What... <laughs> What, what does that say on the right side there? Are those things to avoid in Florida, or are those? Okay. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Lisa, that's the second time you've interrupted me now in a, on a sermon, and so... You, <laughs> you guys are awesome. Um, it feels weird to pray. <laughs> after that, but let's, let's have a word of prayer. I'm grateful. God, thank you so much for your love for us, your kindness, your goodness. Um, God, I'm grateful for this church. Um, I'm, God, it just, it's just unreal um, what you've been um, uh, doing and are doing and have done here. I'm so grateful uh, for just the experience I've had, but more so, I'm, I'm very grateful for the people who came here today, for the people who might even be trying out FBN for the first time, because I, I know um, that what you um, are doing here, uh, that you're going to continue, and God, that uh, I'm, I believe that even in six months and a year, that FBN is going to be better off uh, and in a better position to reach people for the gospel. God, I'm just excited for what you're doing here, and I'm excited for the people here. And uh, God, for anyone who, who's new uh, to this place, or maybe even new to you, new to faith, God, I pray that today would be a critical day for them. God, that they would make decisions towards you. Uh, God, that they would be challenged and, and questioned in, in their motivations of living. God, more so that you'd be praised and glorified by just a body of people who is in love with you who finds full delight in the deepest parts of their being simply because of who Jesus is. So God, let us find great peace in that. Let us rest in that this time. We're grateful for this moment and this day to share together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, I want to start by just saying that I, I, I love you all too, and uh, uh, this has been a fun, fun uh, journey, uh, being here almost 16 years on staff and uh, just filled with gratitude. That's that's all it is today. I'm just grateful. Just crazy, crazy grateful uh, for all of you. And so thank you for your patience. Uh, thank you for your kindness. Um, if you're ready for me to leave, thanks for keeping that to yourself. Um, and we're going to share just a time here in Mark 8 like normal. Uh, because if I make it any more personal than that, then I'm just going to weep here for an hour. And it's going to be a waste of everyone's time. And if I, if I break, it's pretty gross. I get snotty. I get gross. And so I just want to spare you of that as well. And so we're going to, we're going to focus in on Mark 8 today, uh, but just know as we go through the course of the day uh, that you are loved, uh, that you are our family. Um, and if we ever do get a house in Florida, you're welcome to it. So, um, and you might be surprised at how often you see us. <laughs> it's really not that hard to get back and forth. So um, um, we'll be here again as visitors this time, but, or that time, but yeah. So anyways, let me start into this introduction as if nothing's going on, right? Um, about 200 years ago, there was a man, a Welsh minister by the name of Christmas Evans. Anybody ever heard of this man? Not many people, but I guess 200 years ago, he was very famous, very famous preacher. He was known to some as the greatest Baptist preacher Great Britain ever had. Um, which I think is pretty neat. And so one day, uh, this famous preacher apparently got sick. 
Um, the problem was that the event was already made. Um, the crowd had gathered, um, and he was, he was due to preach, but he couldn't do it. And so the moderator of the event got up in front of the crowd and said, Christmas isn't here today, but what we have for you is a lesser known, lesser famous, probably not as good preacher for you, right? And so as he made his introduction of this guy, the moderator could see in the crowd, people were already like bummed out. He could just see it. They were stirring and it looked like they were about to leave. And so then he got back up and he made this announcement. And I love this. He says, anyone who has come here today to worship Christmas Evans may leave now. It's pretty good, right? All who have gathered to worship God may stay. And as the story goes, not a single person left which I think is pretty cool. It's one of the things that I've learned, I think, in, you know, nearly 16 years of ministry. Is that a lot of times when people are called to authentic worship, they will often rise to it. And in the process, they'll encourage others to do the same. Now imagine uh, um, the room, whenever the moderator said that, all who came here to worship Christmas Evans may leave. I mean, who's going to be the first one to walk out after that? I'm out of here, you know. I came here to worship Christmas, which has another meaning to it, you know, altogether. But no, like, of course not. There was probably a lot of people looking at each other to see, are, are you going to leave? Well, I'm not going to leave. So, if, so, you know, like there was no word spoken, but there was a, 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 a unified agreement. No, we're here. And you know what? He's right. We came here to worship God, not a person. And this is kind of my desire for FBN today, that through an acknowledgement of the reality of Jesus's identity, through his death and burial and resurrection, as we kind of use these verses to get into that, the, the intentions and the motives of our hearts would also be challenged. Not to just put everyone on eggshells before we take off, but hopefully on the backside that the challenging of your intentions would actually foster and create newness in your conviction, in your passion, in your love, in your worship, in your service uh, to Jesus. All for no better reason, because there isn't a better reason, but for no better reason than just because of this, because Jesus is just that delightful. He is just that good. He is just that pleasing. And so it makes sense to use these verses in Mark chapter 8 to unlock for us uh, this kind of, this time together as the Pharisees once again are in argumentation with Jesus as they continue to resist his divine and pure identity and the corresponding vitality of faith and spirituality they could have had if they just got out of their own way and just believed. But instead they perpetuate this willful, stubborn disbelief. And so that's what we're going to read about today. I'm going to invite, who is our reader today? Seth Wyram. Is there a Seth Wyram here? Seth is going to come up. He's going to read our passage today, Mark 8, uh, 11 to 12. And actually, I'll have you read verse 13 just to close the paragraph out as well, if you don't mind. It's a minor curveball to throw at you at the end of here. Do you want him to stand up? Oh, yes. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning. <laughs> Good morning. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. Awesome. Thank you. You can have a seat. 
That's not the first time that we saw Jesus just drop a one-liner, drop a, you know, drop the mic, and then just, he just left. <laughs> you know, he just walks out. He doesn't wait to see how people are going to respond. He just says what he needs to say, and he moves on. It's a pretty cool thing. Lots of things even to learn in that mannerism of, of who Jesus is. Now, I want to start today by just acknowledging, if we're talking about intentions and motivations, um, that clearly, just so you know, just so it's clear, the Pharisees are not genuinely seeking anything from Jesus here. As it says, they're trying to test him. They're trying to get him into a, a place of hypocrisy, of ignorance, which is just a no-go with Jesus. You don't do that with him because as they often should have known by now that when you try to expose Jesus in some kind of hypocrisy or ignorance, it's going to be your own that's exposed. And that happened to them constantly, and, they, and yet they, they stepped into it again, and their ignorance, their hypocrisy was exposed before the entire crowd. But what we have in this story is just a glimpse into the fuller conversation that happens. And we, we see the fuller conversation when you put the synoptic gospels together, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, um, they were all written according to a similar timeline. They all acknowledge a lot of the same conversations, the same stories, but each author identifies different aspects to each story, right? And so in Mark's account, in typical Mark fashion, you see the dispute and you see Jesus' one-liner to close it out, Right? There's a fuller conversation that happens behind, uh, behind it all, though. And so I want to jump over to Matthew chapter 16, and we, get, we glean from Matthew 16 this detail about the same conversation that's happening. And Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 4, he says, an evil and adulterous generation, not just a generation, but an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And then he left them and went away. Again, drop the mic, walk out. But what he does here is he gives us a little more, you know, a little more detail into what's happening. And first of all, he doesn't just refer to it as a generation, but an evil and adulterous generation. What's an adulterous generation? Well, it's whenever you leave one love and go to another, right? It's whenever you betray one for another. And the Pharisees often did that and preached a message that led people to do that, even if that wasn't their sole intent. That's what happened. And so the evil and adulterous generation that Jesus is addressing, I think, is one that is forged by the Pharisees, and it's one of disbelief. Even though God is their God, by rejecting Jesus, they reject their God. And so there's a betrayal. There's an adultery of faith. Because up to this point, I mean, you think about it, it wasn't that Jesus didn't already offer a ton of signs, right? If you think about just up to this point in the course of Mark, he's healed people. Uh, there was a woman who just touched his cloak and she was healed of, a, of an issue that she had for 12 years, right? He's raised people from the dead. He's done remarkable things, most of which the Pharisees, if they didn't hear about it, they, they were preview to it. They, they were in the experience. They witnessed it. They watched it. And yet they still have the guts to come up to Jesus and say, give us a sign. That makes no sense. Jesus has given them more than they need to believe in him. The issue is that they don't want to. They're not seeking belief here. They've already decided they are not believing. And when you decide that you're not going to believe, there is nothing more to give you. There is no sign to convince you. There's nothing more. And so what we have is Jesus pointing to one sign 
He actually says there is going to be another sign that's going to come. It's the sign of Jonah, he calls it, in Matthew chapter 16. And in Luke's account of this conversation, Luke's gives, Luke gives more detail about the sign of Jonah that Jesus references. And so Jesus says this in Luke chapter 11, verses 30 through 32. Again, the same conversation, just more detail about what's going on. Jesus says, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is using these examples. One example is uh, uh, the Queen of Sheba who traveled across the world to visit King Solomon. If you don't know who King Solomon is, he was the wisest and richest king to have ever existed. Like, you don't get more top than that, right? She traveled the world because his fame was known to the world. So she traveled the world to visit him, and they had this conversation. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 10, where they just went back and forth about faith, about life, about spirituality. And then she left back to her home encouraged. But the thing is, is she already made the trip ready to believe. She knew something was going on. She was seeking. She was genuinely seeking. Then you have Jonah. Jonah, in a similar way, he was to be God's spokesperson to the Ninevites. He was reluctant. He didn't want to go. But God forced him, and he went, and then he preached, and he must have been pretty good because the entire city repented. The entire city repented and was drawn to the Lord and, you know, put on the sackcloth and did the whole repentance thing. And they showed humility. So the queen of Sheba displayed a faith or at least a readiness towards faith. The Ninevites responded with faith in repentance, which is crazy because one of the things that Jesus is making, one of the points Jesus is making here is that these aren't Pharisees. Like the Ninevites, the queen, they're not Pharisees. They're not even Jews. They're Gentiles. And they needed much less than the Pharisees seemed to need to come to that place of belief. The Pharisees, however, the top tier of God's people, as they saw it, they needed more and they needed more and they needed more. And they still did not believe. And in fact, they saw much more than the Ninevites or than the queen ever saw. Because Jesus was with them and he did what he did in front of them. And yet they still did not believe. Jesus is greater than Solomon. He's greater than Jonah. They saw it in person and still wanted to play these games with Jesus. That's when Jesus says, no more sign is going to be given to you. There is no sign that can be given to you. You've already decided in your heart, signs don't matter now. It doesn't matter. You've seen me, you've heard me teach, you've watched me work, and you still refuse to understand and believe. And so nothing more is going to be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. By the way, to fully understand the sign of Jonah. God did force Jonah, Jonah to speak, didn't he? But Jonah had to go into the belly of the fish or the whale or whatever you understand that to be for three days until the thing vomited him out. And then Jonah was like, okay, I guess I'll go do this thing. Jonah's, in a way, like that whole experience was a prefigure of what? Is it not the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? who was also swallowed by the earth and then brought back to life 
And it's upon his name that people repent and be saved or people refuse and bear the consequence of hell. It's upon his name. This is the crux of everything we are as followers of Jesus Christ. He was not going to play this game with the Pharisees. He already knew their hearts. And so the only thing left for them was the sign of Jonah. And it was less of a sign, like an individualized sign, you know, of like a healing or like some kind of cool thing for the audience. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a universe-altering event. It's a sign for everyone in all of human history, both past, present, and future. It's a sign for you now. It's a sign for me. It's a sign for everyone who has preceded us and everyone who will follow us. It is a universe-altering event, and everyone must make a choice regarding what they believe about that event. And no choice is still a choice, and it's the wrong one. You understand that? So, let's talk about the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've got to understand that this is the crux of who we are. This brings power to everything in the Christian life. To play Christian while ignoring the implications of Jesus' sacrifice. It's like going to the beach and playing in the sand and calling it deep water surfing. There's nothing there. You're dabbling, but you're not in the experience. You're not, you're not in the wave. Those who are in the wave, they are people who have experienced death to self. They, they bury the sinful habits and, and the old ways of living, or at least they are always in that work. They are resurrected into living into the likeness of Jesus with newness of character, of attitude, of perspective. These are the real trademarks of our faith, are they not? So often, though, we reduce all of this to just, you know, a version of following Jesus that means we, you know, make a good living, don't cuss, and show up to church when you can, and you're killing it. And this is just not the mindset of people who have been transformed by the full sacrifice of Jesus in his death and burial and resurrection. Now, I realize that we often uh, um, preach and teach of a Jesus who is also God. And this is absolutely true. There's two things that I, we've got to acknowledge about the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in these two things that we are going to acknowledge, it provides every follower, every aspiring follower, everything they need to pursue the Lord with vitality and with integrity. And the two things that we see in this beautiful sign of Jonah, this death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is Jesus' divine nature put on full display and the beauty and purity of his intentions for people. We see his divine nature and we see the purity of his intentions. And so I want to talk about those for just a moment. First of all, of course, we preach and teach that Jesus is divine that he was also God, that he is God incarnate, that him and God and the Holy Spirit are actually one and the same, though three different persons. And this is a critical and essential understanding for true salvation. You don't have to understand the intricacies of the Trinity, but you do need to know that Jesus is God. Otherwise, his death for you means very little. I could die for you right now, and it's not going to mean a whole lot because I'm not God. My death for you doesn't forgive anything. His does. He is God, and so it's upon that quality, his divine nature, that we are saved, that we have an eternity with our creator. And just to use scripture to support this point, obviously in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it says it straight up. He is the image of the invisible God. 
He is the firstborn over all creation. Not that he was literally born. But the firstborn is what? It's the supreme inheritor. It's the heir to everything. It's all Jesus's. That's the point. Verse 16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Please understand, there is no salvation to be found in any thought or religion that teaches a lesser Jesus. It is not there. But a moment of honesty here. The divinity of Jesus has rarely been my crisis of faith. For you, it might be. You're in that place of doubt. You're in that place of confusion. You don't really know the full identity of Jesus. And I'm calling on you today to believe. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord. He is God. Believe it, because he is. But to be honest, my crisis of faith was not about that. I grew up in a Christian household. My parents loved the Lord. I've understood from a young age that Jesus and God are one and the same. I can't fully describe it all the way, but I've believed it for a long time. My crisis of faith was never about his divinity. It was always about his motives. Does he really mean well for me? Or is he just a God who wants robots? Does he really love his people? Does he really really care the best for me? Does he really want a relationship with me or does he just want my allegiance? You can believe in a divine savior God, but there's a lot of versions that that could be. But the God that we see in the person of Jesus Christ is one that is full of love, full of, full of delightfulness for you in him. That's our God. Just because I believed in the divinity of Jesus, that didn't spare me from long seasons of pressure and anxiety and confusion and suffering and shame and on and on it goes. I believed in his identity, his divine identity. I struggled with his motives. And so it's with that that I wanted to say this, that though believing in the divine nature of Jesus Christ is critical for salvation, and it is, Believing in the goodness and humility and purity of his intentions is just as critical for flourishing in that salvation. And I've met plenty of people who are saved, but they are not flourishing. They are saved, but they are not full of life about it. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever been that? I have. It makes you wonder if they truly understand the nature of the God they claim. Unfortunately, we often live out the version of God that we believe in. And you could tell by an angry person who just, you know, is very critical, you know, what kind of God they believe in. And unfortunately, in my case, I think I've had a wrong view of God in the past, where I think he's purely heavy-handed and he's sovereign and he just wants my allegiance versus a God who actually cares and loves and is interested in my desires and who wants a relationship and somebody I can talk to because he's alive and with me. It's a different thing. What's the difference between a saved person who is lifeless and a saved person who is overjoyed and at peace? One of them is in love. You've been in love, right? You've, I don't know, you got married at some point in time, maybe. You've been in love with that sweetheart from high school. I don't know. You know that feeling, right? You're in love. You're about it. That's like everything you are. That's your priority, number one. Everything else is just kind of there. You're in love. 
There's a delight in Christ. And those who delight in Christ, they live for what? They live for delighting Christ. There's those who don't, and so they won't, and there's those who do, and so that's how they live. And it, it's tangible. You can see it. And I think one of the coolest things about this is that Jesus put this beautifully on display. Our delight in God should be the same as Jesus' delight in God, who even in his worst places of life on this earth still subjected himself to the pleasure of his Father, which I think is awesome, right? Mark chapter 14, uh, verse 36, this is when Jesus is grieving He's praying, God, take this cup of suffering from me, right? Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 36, he says, Abba, Father. This is his cry and his grief, Abba, Daddy, right? It's a term of intimacy. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup of suffering from me. Don't let me die on the cross. Is there any other way around the cross? Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. That's Jesus living solely and, and first and foremostly for pleasing the heart of his father. And to put it plainly, in John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, so Jesus said to them, when you lift up the son of man, right? Death, burial, resurrection. When you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because what? Because I always do what pleases him. I always do what pleases him. At no point did Jesus ever feel pressure to earn his father's delight. God delighted in him, and so he, Jesus lived to delight his father. There was no appeasement. There was no fear of disappointment. There was no, you know, only the confidence of delight from his father. I think many Christians often live as if they need to earn something from God. And like, we all know, right? We preach against this all the time. We all know that this is like not right, but we still, like that's the default of the way we live. And it comes out in a very dysfunctional relationship with God. Almost as if we are like, that, like, like a neglected child who's been fighting for his father's attention and approval through doing weird things, people-pleasing and insecurity and, and, and acting out. And we see that even from a human perspective. We see a child who has that in their lives, and we respond with sympathy. But at the same time, deep down, we understand that that kid's not right, and neither is his father. Something's been broken. Something's dysfunctional. This is not how it needs to be in the love of Jesus Christ. The love of Jesus Christ spares us of this. We can't earn it, and we don't have to. We have his attention, and we don't need to fight for it or do weird things for it. We have victory in anything that's in our lives. We don't need to look anywhere else for it. He's a good father. His delight in you is certain. And it's founded, and this is critical, it's founded on the love of Christ Jesus in you. Apart from Jesus, you can't find it. In Jesus, you have all of it. John Bunyan said, God and my soul are made friends by his blood. And so my encouragement to us today, my final encouragement really to you from at least this angle is simply this, to step into living in the pleasure and for the pleasure of God and to do it by abiding daily in the one whom God was most pleased. 
Abide daily in the one whom God was most pleased. And by living into his likeness, into the likeness of Jesus, we are more readily able to recognize God's love for us and we more readily reflect God's love to others. When abiding in Christ becomes our first intention, our primary intention of the day, then it just repurposes everything else, doesn't it? Your time at school, your time at work, at practice, at home, your evening, your morning, your money, whatever it is, life is richer in purpose. Every single thing that you have or do, it becomes uh, repurposed, an opportunity for you to know God's love and to return God's love, to be in a loving conversation and relationship with your living Savior. And to show to the world that there's actually a much better version of following Jesus than what we often see out there. It's crazy, isn't it? Hypocritical Christians who care nothing more than other people just behaving according to how they think. Like, it's just nonsense. It's unreal stupid. We have got to give the world a better picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And it starts with love. And if we're going to do that, then we must abide in Christ. Without this, it's hopeless. And so, how do we abide in Jesus as our first and primary intention? How do we abide in Christ as our first and primary intention? And I want to give you two words for this. The first one is invitation, and the second one is conversation. Invitation and conversation. One of my wife's favorite things is catching up with people by going on walks. She loves it. She loves going to the park, and she loves to just have a friend, and they just talk. And that's how they catch up. So they're keeping, you know, their feet are moving, but they're, they're, they're together in it, and they're talking. And listen, imagine a daily walking date with Jesus Christ. Each of you inviting Jesus into the motivations of your heart and the thoughts of your mind. And don't diminish this invitation. I understand theologically God's always with you. Jesus is always there. If you're saved, he's always, I get that. But for your mind and for your heart, that daily invitation is critical. Because I've been saved for a long time, but I spent plenty of days mindless of who he is or, or what he's about that day. I could still be saved and care none at all, you know? Like that's That's not great. Like that invitation, that daily invitation, it inclines our hearts and our minds to who he is. And so we make that invitation and we align our heart and our mind to his. We don't underestimate that invitation. But once that invitation is made, let's walk. Let's walk. Let's walk through the responsibilities and the requirements of the day in conversation with our Savior, with him by your side providing a listening ear and counsel when matters arise, listening in on your conversations with your coworkers and family members and maybe giving you some advice afterwards. Times where you could just be together and share the road together without needing to talk and other times where he needs to just sit you down and talk at you for a little bit. Times when you can't walk at all and so he just picks you up and he whispers in your ear as he carries you along the way. Galatians 5 calls this walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. You know, we don't have the flesh and blood of Jesus right here at our side, but we have his Spirit in us. And we can have a living, ongoing conversation with our Savior because he is alive, and he is well, and he is in you, and he is with you. And I think a lot of times we, it's just easy for us to practice this weird version of Christianity where it's like we treat him as a dead guy. You know what I mean? You've seen the movies where like there's a 
someone who's dying or, you know, somebody comes back as a ghost or whatever, like has this last exchange with a loved one. And, you know, the kid who just lost his dad and the dad comes back and is like, I'll always be with you right here. Right? You've seen that scene a million times. And then the dad floats off into eternity forever. And I guess that kid's supposed to just coast on that memory forever. And call it a relationship? It's not real. But that's how we treat Jesus sometimes. Right? He's, we just live in the sentimental memory of who he was and what he did. And every Sunday morning, we gather for a family reunion where we remember our dear friend who passed away at the way too early age of 33 years old. And then we go back to our week. We remember him here and there. We might mention him to a friend here and there. I mean, we do that with any deceased person, right? Nothing changes in our lives. He's a talking point, but there's no transformation. Now, those of you who are too smart for your own good, you're already poking holes at this, and you're like, this is not theologically like a great (laughs) metaphor at all, right? You're ready to go to group and just talk about that. My encouragement to you, especially if you're somebody who has a really hard time engaging in the presence of God, is to practice this. To actually start into a conversation with your Savior that doesn't have an ending point. It doesn't end. It's a conversation that goes and goes with frequent invitations through the day and a pretty core invitation at the beginning of the day. Before you cream it, try it and see if you are not aware and in tune with the presence of your God in a unique way. And so what I want to do today is give you a time to start that conversation because I believe in it. I believe that transformation into the likeness of Jesus begins and grows in daily conversation with the risen and living Savior. He is alive, and he is near you, and he is in you. And you can have this conversation with your risen and living Savior on a daily basis. But I don't know what condition you came into this, into this church this morning in. I don't know where your conversation with God is right now. I really don't know, and I can't, I can't know, and I guess I don't really need to know, but my guess is the majority of us, myself included, we have a conversation that we need to have with our Lord. And I'm not talking about the conversation of just the, you know, the quick mealtime prayer. God, thanks for this food. Amen. Let's move on. Or, you know, daily Bible verse, and let me get, um, you know, a quick prayer to just cover my bases for the day. God, let this be a really good day. Amen. And then just forget it. I'm talking about an invitation that's followed with a conversation that doesn't have an end until your eyes are asleep and then when you wake up, the conversation is still going and then you invite him in and it's an ongoing walk in the presence of the Lord. Maybe you're here and you're just out of practice, honestly. Like you have some things going for you, like you, you, you have some habits that are good, but you're not really in the practice of walking daily with the Lord. And today, I really just want to encourage you to just invite God into your walk anew to begin a conversation with him that really does not end when you walk out of these doors. Maybe you're here and you are in the practice of some good things. You've got some good spiritual habits, but there are things that you are leaving out intentionally. Things that you know are probably not good with boyfriend or girlfriend. Things that you know that are probably not good with things that you've looked at on the computer. Things that you know are probably not good about the way you've handled that past issue or that situation or this relationship that's on the rocks. And so it's like, I'll just leave that to the side, but I'll keep going over here. I'll read my verse. You know, I'll I'll pray for a good day. I'll do all that stuff. But these other things, 
we'll just, he knows about them, so it's okay. I don't need to talk about them. Probably have that conversation with the Lord today. Confess, repent, understand and believe that his gaze towards you is completely love because you have the blood of Jesus Christ in your life. Which brings me to my last hypothetical. Maybe you're here and you've never had an actual conversation with God. You've thrown some things out there in the air like most people do, right? Anybody who they have any reverence for the Lord or not, they'll, they'll throw something out to God on a bad day. That's not a conversation. That's not anything. That's superstition. But today you can begin a conversation with your creator and your savior when you appeal to him upon the blood of Jesus Christ. And you say, God, I see Jesus for who he is. I know he is you. I know he came, that he died. That if I believe in him, that he'll save me. I don't understand all the intricacies of this, but I believe it. And I know that he's real and alive. And I can have an ongoing relationship with you through his blood starting today. I believe it and I want to receive it. And guess what? You'll have it. You will have it if you pray, if you confess, if you repent, and if you give yourself to God. He'll save you by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you will live in the pleasure of your Father for all eternity. So if you have not made that decision, if you have not had that conversation, today is your day. This is your time. Have the conversation you need to have with God today. I'm going to give you just a few moments to do that, and then Brett's going to come up and close our service. You take your time with the Lord that you need in this moment.